With the narrow and deep structure, we separate out the communication traffic to the production traffic. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 199 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Jenny Naylor is one of Australia's top 100 accounting practices and has enjoyed phenomenal growth over the past two decades. Jenny Naylor was nominated several times as the fastest growing accounting practice in Australia by BRW. One major factor contributing to this growth is, according to Ed Chen, its team structure, what Ed calls the ideal team structure, the blueprint Ed Chen developed over time to have a team of seven manage one million in fees. Blueprint and team structure, what should a team structure look like? Yes, this is probably the, the secret of being able to go beyond a, a million dollar per partner practice. This is the secret in being able to get to five million per partner without needing to put another partner on. And it all comes back to obviously managing traffic flow. And I'll just pre give you that bit of background so that it makes sense what I'm going to talk about. As I said earlier, there's two types of traffic. There's communication traffic and there's production traffic. And they have to be handled by two different personalities. They're not the same. And that if you're trying to find a person who can do both, then you will, in the minority cases, be able to find that person. But sooner than later, you'll have to decide whether they do one or the other, right? Because as your business grows and it gets bigger, they have to then specialize into one or the other. Can you give me an example of what it looks like? Would you usually have a client meeting together with the grinder and the minder or finder so that if there is a technical question, the grinder can answer it? Or would you then just keep the technical questions apart and that can be done by email and the finder is more just finding out how the client is going, how the business is growing, what support he needs? That's a, that's a very good question, Heidi. It's a combination of all actually because in most of the times, uh, you may recall I said to you that to be a client manager or a, a minder, you need to have done your apprenticeship. You need to have done the work so that you know what a sausage tastes like without just selling the sizzle. So often the, that individual knows pretty much everything about the work. So he or she would talk to the grinder and say, is there anything that I need to know? I'm about to go meet this client. Is there anything that's unusual that I need to know about? And the grinder would you know, let them know if there was something that was unusual, they should have enough experience to look at it. So, for example, when I look at a set of accounts, it's like a like a book. It tells a story to me. It talks to me. And that's enough for me to – you can just give me a set of accounts and I can, I can go and talk to the clients with it. However, leading up to that, there's been a lot of interaction between the client manager and the accountant, the grinder, in getting that work done. So they're talking to each other. They're working together. You know, often the grinder does the compliance work and goes and talks to the client manager about strategy. Okay, so uh, they get to a point with the uh, work and the 
the grinders process the work, gets to a draft, and then he or she then goes to the client manager who's more the, the finder stroke minder, and they talk about, you know, how can I prepare this more efficiently, reduce the tax to the client, sort of um, finish the work off so that it's tax effective and it's in a position where it's, uh, you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's and you've maximised their tax position or minimise their tax position, I should say. And that takes, um, you know, a, a team effort working together. So by the time the client manager sees the client, he or she wouldn't have gone through all of that. So they're really up to date. Now, in the event that, you know, a question is asked of him or her, then, yes, they generally bring the grinder in. So it's 80-20 or 80% of the time they won't need that grinder in the meeting with them. 20% of the time they may need, so they'll just you know, bring the grinder in if a question was asked and if, they, if they're in the same office, they could do that. But most of the time, the by the time they get to see them, if they've done the job properly and by the time they go to see the client, they know everything about the client, They about the work that's done. They just didn't physically do the work, but you know, 90% would have flowed normally and then the 10% they would have discussed it. And it's the 10% that they talk about when they're in front of the client. So in the main, they don't really need that grinder there in the room. But as I said, if they do, then they just bring that person in. Mm. So that's how it's generally done. But the grinder is not the person that talks to the client. He or she knows how to do the work and they do it very, very well but they just can't communicate that to the client. And, of course, then that's where the manager or the client manager comes in because they've got good interpersonal skills and and communication skills. Another question, and I have to apologise. I always make myself the devil's advocate. That's okay. And it goes into psychology now and into team motivation, how you motivate your team. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking that the grinder has done all the work. The client was going to come in next morning. The accounts weren't 100% ready yet, so the grinder worked late to get everything done and printed, etc. And then the next morning the grinder is back at at his desk, let's assume it's a male. And then the minder goes out to the reception. The grinder can hear how the client is greeted. They go into the boardroom. Coffee and biscuits are brought into the boardroom. The grinder is alone at his desk. He can hear laughter coming out of the boardroom. I don't know. Don't you think that would demotivate the grinder? You know, that he would feel like... I did all the work and now I don't even get a hello or no, anything. The funny, funny thing is those people don't even want to see the client. In fact, if you put them in front of the client, they would say, look, get me out of here. They just don't want to see the client. They just don't want to be in a position where they've got to actually talk to the client and they're quite happy to just sit in the background. And the more they sit in the background, the happier they are. And the more you put them in front of the client, the less happy they are. Okay. So somebody who would feel like the way I just described Mm. then wouldn't be the right person for a grinding role. Correct, correct. And my experience has been that, you know, if a person just wants to do grinding, that's not me, by the way, but (laughs) if someone that just wants to do grinding, they wouldn't like, they wouldn't want to be put in front of the client. They actually hate it even if you ask them to. Sometimes there's, you know, a bit of missing information. It could be a missing bank statement. And you've asked them to ring the client and ask them for the bank statement. They, they even hate doing that. You know, they just don't want to have to communicate or talk to anybody. Isn't that quite rare, somebody like mm, that? Not in our who world. Is such a, who is <laughs> such a strong introvert? No, not in our world. In fact, um, I made the mistake, uh, Heidi, of uh, there was a particular girl here. Her name was, she's long, that was a long time ago, so I could talk about her. Her name was Amy. I thought she had really good interpersonal skills. 
right? She could speak really well. She could communicate really well. She could explain things. The most difficult thing about tax is being able to explain it in layman's terms, the way that the client understands. I mean, everybody, every accountant knows how to talk to each other in accounting terms, but how do you convert that language into layman's terms? You know, it, it, it's a particular skill. And anyway, Amy, I thought, had that skill. I thought she was fantastic. So I kept, and this is a long time ago when I was practicing, I don't practice anymore, but, you know, I made the mistake of, part of it was a bit selfish because I really needed a client manager at that time because client managers are really hard to find. People with interpersonal skills are really hard to find and communication skills are really hard to find. There's a lot more people who can do the work and do it really, really well. And I kept encouraging her to, you know, move up to a client manager. You know, look, I think you're, you're, I think you'll be really good at this, Amy. You know, you're fantastic at this, you know, like, did you want to uh, consider it? And then she handed her resignation in, right? And when I asked her why, I was shocked. I was dumbfounded. I was, you know, I was, I was completely, it was completely unexpected. She said that she felt me pressuring her too much to be a client manager and she didn't want to be a client manager. I find that there's more people in the, in the accounting world that are quite happy to sit and do the work and not have to deal with people, you know, and not to deal with clients and not to deal with – there's a certain level of stress that comes with dealing with clients because your role as a client manager is to educate, you know, educate the client because most problems that occur is simply because of misunderstanding and they don't – the clients didn't know you know, because it's it's quite complicated. Tax is really, really complicated and timing and all that kind of thing and, you know, and whenever there's changes to the tax um, legislation, it's all about educating and training the person. And the more educated and trained they are and knowledgeable they are, the less misunderstandings you'll have with them. So most of the time, I put it down to 80% of the time when you do have a problem with a client is because of miscommunication. And some people just don't like to communicate. They just like to do the work. So in your practice, it's usually that the grinder wouldn't call the client for a bank statement. You would get the minder or the finder to call for the bank statement? It's not as black and white as that. Okay, So often if it's just a bank statement, the grinder can do that. But often the grinder doesn't want to do that. They don't like to deal with people, so the manager then has to do it. But in the event that the grinder is happy to do that, we would, you know, obviously let them do it because it's it's quicker and faster and to do that. The people you described who would prefer to just do the work, I can see immigrants who feel unsure about their spoken English in that role, who read English very well, who are fantastic technicians, mm-hmm. but who feel insecure about the English. But the, the lady that I using is Amy. She's an Aussie, a white Caucasian Aussie. She just didn't okay. like to talk to people. Okay. Yes. That destroys my theory then. But obviously we can't cherry pick one and say that that's representative. Okay, we can't do that. This is over 30 years of experience and... We've got 160 staff, but obviously I've done like a thousand interviews and managed many more people than that. So I'm just talking about in the main. In the main, if you're a grinder, you like to sit there and do the work. And some of us like to do a bit of both. You know, we don't mind talking to the clients. Isn't that the majority who like mm. to 
do a bit of both who enjoy the interaction as long as it's not too much and they can pull back into their little cubicle and do some grinding work to recharge? I think when the when the communication is very simple, like, you know, can I have your missing bank statement? You know, something like that. But when when it's, you know, explaining things to the client, it can get quite difficult because the technical side is very, very difficult. And uh, I'll give you an example. Often a client would come in and then they've got they've got a um, profit of a hundred thousand, right? And the tax bill on that and say say it's thirty thousand, so just a nice round number of thirty percent. And you say to them, Oh, you your tax bill is thirty thousand dollars. And then they say they say back to you, thirty thousand dollars, I don't have any money in the bank. How can I've made a, a hundred grand profit and you're saying I've got to pay tax of thirty thousand, but there's no money in the bank. I've got no money at all. There's no way I could have made a profit. And therefore, I shouldn't pay any tax. Right. Now, to be able to answer that and manage that client's expectations through the numbers and so forth, it takes a particular person to be able to do that. Yes, I agree. And if, without the right personal skills, it can very quickly get confrontational. Correct. And then you lose a client. It was nobody's fault. It wasn't the accountant's fault. It wasn't the client's fault. It was just a miscommunication between the accountant and the client. And that takes a particular skill set, and not everybody has that. And as I said, you know, most people can communicate at a basic level. And even without a strong command of English, as long as you can, you know, ask the, that question, a missing bank statement by email, that would get you by. But our client managers have a heightened level of communication and they have to have that because we are in the business of people and the way that you win clients over and the way that you win more referrals is your connection with the person and the connection is done by communication and it's you just can't do it by just say numbers or emails it's people personalities whether they like you or not all those kind of things come into it Yes, I think this, whether they like you or not, I think that's incredibly important. And at the same time, it's so difficult to learn. Oh, it's so Some difficult. people have this aura that just anybody mm. likes them and then other people just haven't worked it out how to be likable and it's it's you can't put it into words i don't know what it is and it's different for different people i'll give you an example we had two client managers here and i'll just use different names one was david and one was kim and i had a particular client who when he came on board i thought he's a really big client i thought that david would be the perfect person for him like david is really smart really technical great interpersonal skills takes the time to explain things to you explains in a way that you'd understand. So I thought this big and really big client, David, would be the right person. Anyway, after a few months, he didn't like David. <laughs> and I was shocked because I thought I nailed it. I thought I got it right. Whereas Kim, Kim's a different personality. Yes, she's got reasonable interpersonal skills, but David was this kind of person you just liked. You know, when you meet them, you just like them. And to make it even better, he can even communicate really well. Whereas Kim is more of a get-things-done person. She can communicate with you, but she's more cut to the chase and, you yeah, know, and explain it. Yeah, and work with every client. Yes. So I thought that David was better. But anyway, he didn't like him. And I said, look, I, back then I was small and I, I didn't have the big team I have now. I said, well, I've only got one other. Her name's Kim. And but I don't know whether you'll like her. 
Anyway, long story short, she loved her because he was, she was oh, so very, So the client was good. a female? No, the client was a guy. It was a guy. It was a yes. guy. Hmm. And he liked her, he liked Kim and didn't like David, and it was because he liked Kim's style. Kim's very, very quick with answers, very, very yeah. quick, gets things done very, very quickly, and he Hello, liked that. Hello, A, B, C, D, bye. Yeah, cut to the chase, you know, like, so he liked that. So you can never pick it. So, but, you know, you you can only try and then, you know, and we always say to people, look, if we, if we don't get it right, don't leave, just tell us we've got other client managers here that we can, you know, yes. we can trial you with. Yes. Another factor that I think comes in is gender. Some people yes. just click a lot better with one gender than with the other. I have men that come in in businesses and they insist on their client manager being a woman. They don't want a man. They don't want another man looking after them. They want a woman looking after them. They don't want to deal with another alpha male. Yeah. With these pe people, they, they say to me that uh, the, the girls are more reliable, they're more consistent. You don't have to remind them and they, uh, they're much better at their job in this, in this kind of work. And uh, so they prefer a female. So I, I don't know whether that's like we've gone out there particularly to do that, but nine, 80 to 90 percent of our staff are female and they work really, really well in this environment. It's just perfect for them. Mm. But don't you find that female clients often click much better with a male client manager? Yeah, I, have, I haven't seen that. Like I might have got it completely wrong with these men clients who've asked for female, but I was just repeating to you what the what yes. the facts were. Yeah, yes, of course. But I haven't seen the other way where a, a woman client asked for a male client manager. I haven't had that. But Most clients that. probably wouldn't specify the gender anyway, would yes. they? Yes, no, they wouldn't. 99% of clients don't specify the gender, but, you know, I've had a not just one but a few quite a few of male clients who've asked for a female client manager, not a male client manager. Mm. You That's were right. saying that you really have two different types of traffic from communication traffic and production traffic yes. and that the production traffic really should be managed by Grindr, whereas the communication traffic requires good communication skills and hence should be covered by the finder or minder. Of course, makes your structure deeper. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting that you said that that actually reduces staff turnover. I had never thought of that. Yes, absolutely. Most... When you run a very flat structure, what I mean by that is that you, you try to find this person who is quick at their work, accurate, great communication skills, great rapport with the clients, and you're trying to find this person, and, and it's really hard to find that person. So you put an ad in the paper and you don't get much, you know, you do, because your ad says that, you, that's the kind of person you want, and, and there's not many of those around, and then that's why it's hard to find that person. But... If you run it deep and narrow and you put people in the right seat in the right bus, so to speak, then you don't need that superstar that can do everything. So you separate the two out. So if you, for example, for a million dollars in fees, you might have, you'd have one client manager to five grinders. Okay. So one client manager to five grinders means that out of the team of six, You've only got one out of that six that's hard to find. So all of a sudden you've reduced your difficulty in recruiting staff down to one out of the six. 
Now, of course, if you are a $2 million practice and you've got two teams, because each team should look after a million dollars in fees, so then you've got uh, two client managers that are difficult to find and you've got 10 who 10 grinders, and they're much, much easier to find. I was never aware of that grinders are easier to find than client managers. I'm not doubting it. It's just new information that I didn't yes. have before. I, I guess most people that go to uni to do accounting are a bit more conservative and they're more reserved. And uh, if you weren't like that, you might have done arts or you might have done marketing or sales. Hmm. So predominantly the people that come out of uni are introverted and they are conservative and that's the kind of role that they've chosen to expect them to be a client manager is you know you you're taking some of them are like i'm i'm more of a client manager than i am a grinder so you know there are people like that but but it's a smaller number hmm. so we're talking about statistics yeah what is the average salary you would pay for a grinder It depends on how the experienced they are. Yes, yeah. so you can, and and it also depends on whether in the country or in the states, uh, in the different in states the are in. Cities, yeah. Yeah. So in Sydney, it's uh, it's different to obviously Melbourne and Brisbane. But in Sydney, uh, it can if you if it's a graduate straight out of uni, it could be something around. Don't quote me on this because I'm, mm. I'm not to date. I'm not at that level. But I think it's around forty odd thousand as a grinder from straight out of uni. And then if you've got, you know, eight years experience, it can be like $80,000, $90,000. If you've got a mature person who's got, you know, um, many, many years of experience under, under their belt, so mm -hmm. to speak. And then an experienced good client manager? A very senior client manager in Sydney can earn up to, you know, about $110,000 to $130,000 around that kind of figure. Let's say you have two experienced ones, so you have two at eighty-five thousand, so that's mm -hmm. hundred and seventy thousand, and then you have three inexperienced. Let's say they're mm -hmm. each on fifty thousand, and then you have the client manager at hundred and twenty thousand, so that's four hundred and forty thousand in salary. Mm -hmm. So of the million dollars you make, you pay four hundred and forty thousand for the engine, basically the client yes. manager and the five grinders. Yep. So you have five hundred and sixty thousand left for the partner for to cover marketing, to cover rent and other operating costs. Yes, your fixed overheads are things like your rent and everything, software and, and your other staff like your receptionist and uh, division, the division six person, which is your, say, your office manager, that runs at about 35% of your turnover. So it just, just very big picture, your costs are good sold, which is the people that actually do mm -hmm. the work should run at about 40% or less, so 40% of your turnover. So that means I got the numbers wrong somewhere. The salary for the grinders is probably lower. Yeah, it, it's not an exact science, Heidi. Yes. It, it just depends on what's around, what's available, and there's some overlapping. But, but in the main, what you want to try and keep it to is about 40%. 40% yes. is about 400 grand. Okay, so cost okay. of goods yeah, sold. sold. Yes. So the salary for the client manager and the five grinders should be about 40%, 40%. of revenue. Correct. And then 35% for operating costs. Cost, yep. That includes marketing, administration, invoicing, and the lot. Yes. And that leaves you in a net profit or, or an EBIT, an EBIT of 25% or more. Yeah. And that then has to cover the partner salary as well, the 25%. No, that's after partner salaries. 
Oh, I see. Uh, so the so partner the, salary also has to sit in the forty percent. Oh, no, no, the partner salary would be in the operating costs. Yes, if 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 the partner is not charging out time, mm-hmm. and most of our partners in our office don't charge out time. Oh, okay. They don't go into the cost of goods sold. Oh, okay. They sit in fixed overheads, but the smaller firms do. The smaller firms may be, f- say, forty percent productive. So forty percent of their wages goes into fixed overheads. Sorry, okay. sorry, forty percent. Sorry, I said it the other way around. If they're forty percent, if the partners are forty percent productive, forty percent of their wages goes in the cost of goods sold, and sixty percent goes in the fixed overheads. So that's the only person that is done on that basis, and it's only because the practice is too small, and we're required to have the partner or the the CEO, if you like, the, which is the the partner, being hands on. But the idea is to not have them hands on. Hence, so they should be in fixed. You should be in fixed. Yeah, so they should be growing the business, not in terms of. I use this analogy like a manufacturing plant. So we're running a manufacturing business, where the grinders are on the conveyor belt. They're making these widgets, and they're producing the widgets and they're you know the products, and then the people in the office, people that are running the business, the owner. If it's a single practitioner, he's the CEO. His job is not to be on the conveyor belt. His job is to grow the business, which is marketing, which is seeing new opportunities, which is seeing new clients, which is he should then see a new client, not charge a client anything for seeing that client, and then handing it down to the team in the factory to get the work done. So in their head, in their mind's eye, it should be a manufacturing organisation. They have to separate out the production, which is why I call it cost of goods sold, from fixed overheads, which is part of your marketing, your CEO's salary, you know, your office manager, all that kind of thing. Because we don't want the CEO to be in on the conveyor belt on the in the factory, you know, making widgets or in our case preparing tax returns. They should be out of there. But often because it's so it's small, you know, if you're under six hundred thousand. You've got to be – but you can't afford to have – you can't afford to hire another accountant, so you need to help out. You know, you need to – because the numbers don't work. If it's 600000 and you're trying to be completely hands-off, hmm. you can't be hands-off. It costs too much money. So in the one office you have where the uh, total revenue is 600000 part of the partner's salary might be in the – Cost of goods sold. So cost of goods sold. Yes. And, but and in the larger practices, the partner's salary would sit in the fixed, fixed overhead. Yes. When you look at the 12 offices, do you – have a fixed salary for the partners or does it vary from office to office depending on the yes it depends on the the size of the office it depends on how many people they're managing it depends on a lot of things but we've created a chan and nail wage kind of a, a um, structure. structure but every organization will do their own because it, it, it starts with what's market you know and then from there they develop their own the 25% we then get to after we mm-hmm. deducted the 40% of cost of goods sold and the operating cost of 35%, we get to 25%. That's after partner salary. After partner yes. salary. But that doesn't cover tax yet. No. So it's EBITDA. So EBITDA, it's before yes. tax, before depreciation and amortization. Correct. Correct. Mm. Do you just manage the EBITDA? Yes. And then the rest is? It's the, the, the rest is unique to the individual practice. What I'm trying to get is uh, the standard. So you can measure the standard EBIT. So you're comparing apples with apples. But in each individual practice, we'll have more or less 
so for example, loans. Then one practice might have more loan than another practice. Their one practice's tax is different to another practice's tax. You know, so, so one practice might have more depreciation than another practice. So your focus I'm, is on, on the, the EBITDA. 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 That's all. Yes. Hmm. Mm. Okay. With the narrow and deep structure, we separate out the communication traffic to the production traffic. So it's much more complex than what I just said because there's a whole lot of different processes that we've got embedded in there. So, for example, the client manager is the person that's responsible for the team. So we have this policy of no bypassing. So you cannot bypass the client manager to the team below them. Now, why? Well, often when I walk into firms, they say this to me. They go, Ed, I wish my staff would take more responsibility and more accountability for what they do because I seem to do everything around here. And then I look at them and I watch them operate for a minute and I, and I say to them, then if you want them to take more responsibility, why do you keep undermining them? And they look at me like, what do you mean I don't undermine them? I said, yeah, you, you constantly undermine them. And if you constantly undermine them, eventually they won't they won't take accountability. They won't take responsibility. And they're sort of looking at me like, a, you know, like I'm from another planet. And they will ask you, how am I undermining? Correct. And then they'll say, well, how am I undermining them? And I say, well, you've asked them to take responsibility and be more accountable to the staff and the clients. But then you'll bypass them and give a work straight down to their staff. And then sometimes they'll say, yeah, but I needed to get it done quickly. And I said, yes, but you're not following the process. If you constantly undermine someone, if you say to someone, I want you to look after these staff, but you jump in there and you take over the staff, then eventually I'll sit back and say, well, if you want to manage them, you want to take responsibility for the staff, you take responsibility then. then. And they look at me like, wow, I was doing that, but I didn't know what I was doing because they've grown, they've grown this practice themselves and they've done everything themselves and they've they want it done quickly and fast and and of course nobody does it the way they do it and they just want it so, that, so I say they focus on the PL and they don't focus on their balance sheet. They focus on quick and efficient, do it quick and fast and get it out the way. They don't focus on their balance sheet, meaning that they've got to invest in their processes and the systems and their people and the training within their people. So they just undermine them because they're thinking P&L, not balance sheet. Okay. So what happens is uh, I'll just talk about the staff first and then I'll talk about the clients. So first uh, you said to the client manager, I want you to look after this, be responsible for the staff. And then you bypass them and you give work directly to their staff. You as the CEO. You as the oh, CEO. I see. Okay. Yeah, give. So you, you might have seen the, seen the client. The client said, look, I want my best done, you know. And then you go back to the office and sort of giving that work to the client manager to let them determine who's going to do the work for, for him or her. You've gone and bypassed her and went straight to one of her staff and said, can you do this best return okay. for my client? You. So they bypass them and they do that. And they do that constantly. So that's undermining the client manager. Correct. So they're constantly undermining the client manager. And if you do that, eventually the client manager will say, if you want to manage the staff, you manage them then. And they won't take accountability for it. But what the owners didn't or the partners didn't realize was they were creating that environment, but they didn't know they were creating it. So those processes 
is really important. Right? So they need to understand. Now, that's going from the work going down to the team. So you want to create this flow. I call it the water flowing through a pipe, and you want that flow to go smoothly through the pipe. If you bypass your client manager and you jump down the line and give it to somebody else, you've just created a blockage, blockage in that flow. And, uh, and you know, and of course, accountants do that all the time or partners do that all the time. They don't know they're doing it. The other way where the client is wanting to talk to the staff, they might ring the grinder directly and they give the grinder a thing to do without talking to the client manager. And then the risk is that it doesn't get built. Correct. And then the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, right? Or the grinder down the line is talking directly to the client. And of course, the client manager doesn't know what's going on. So again, you, you, you're poking holes in this pipe and it's leaking. It's got leaks completely all the way down this pipe and it's got leaks everywhere. Yeah. And the grinder might do some work that is no longer covered by the engagement letter. So later when you come to billing, there's a problem because there's no Correct. official engagement. Correct. And of course, sometimes the grinder goes directly to the partner and asks him a question, not through the client manager. And then the partner answers the question and the grinder goes back to his or her desk and starts doing work and the client manager doesn't know what's going on. So all these little things constantly undermine the client manager and eventually the client manager is not going to take responsibility for anything, for anything because she's just not part of the team. He or she doesn't feel like they're part of the team. Yes. Can I ask you something? The client manager should have a set list of clients. The client manager shouldn't change from year to year. It should be a constant contact with the client, building Correct. up a relationship. Should the grinders also be allocated to a specific client or should they just take the work as it comes? Well, it's not an exact science, but it's best to keep the grinder to doing the same client's work year in, year out. The reason for that is because, you know, the first year they take a little bit longer to do, but the second year they're quicker at it and the third year they're very quick I at agree. it. Right, So it's best to keep them doing the same client work. Yes. Some practitioners swap the grinders around so that the grinder can't build up a relationship with the client so that for fear that the grinder leaves and takes the client with them. Well, But the, that, of course, makes it very inefficient. Well, the grinder in the main shouldn't be talking to the client because he or she doesn't have good communication skills. It should be the client manager. But the fear for a lot of practitioners is that if the client manager speaks to the client, that they might build up a um, relationship with that client and then take the client if they leave. That's a real fear. However, what I found was that you've got to do a few things. Right? First, in your in your employment contracts, you need to state in there that, you know, clients that they introduce to the client managers belongs to the organisation and they're not allowed to approach the clients. Uh, there are other things like, uh, you know, your client managers that you look for should not be entrepreneurial. They should be more intrapreneurial, meaning that uh, the entrepreneurial ones like to, you know, go out on their own and, and build an empire, whereas intrapreneurial client managers likes to work together with another team and they're not a th as, as a threat to you because that's not in their nature. So it's not an exact science, Heidi, and uh, yes, we've, you know, got it wrong in the past, but in the main, you know, 99% of the time we've got it right and we've not had a situation where the client managers left and taken all the clients. 
Yes. And if the client manager is in a position to take all the clients, then it also means that there was nothing else except the relationship. If you have a strong system and strong processes, the relationship with the client manager is just one small part of the entire service. Correct. Hence, it's less likely that a client would leave anyway. Correct. Well, well you, you spot on. I was just about to say that. It's not just the employment contract, it's everything. It's like, um, so we, we have a uniform, so they, they feel like they're dealing with the, the organisation and not an individual. Oh, um, really? The client managers wear mm, a uniform? Yes, they all wear a Chananali uniform. So it's all about building this relationship with the client between the organisation and the client and not between an individual and the client. Because if the client manager was to leave, the only thing he or she could offer the client is the accounting or bookkeeping work. The relationship. The relationship, correct. But we do all other things like, um, you know, um, newsletters, we do seminars, we do financial planning, we do finance, we do. So we've got a holistic approach and relationship with this client. They're not just doing yes. tax and accounting work. For and this. I think that's a much better defense if you may call it so because in the end every client is their own is Great. their own master you know that it's their free will they decide in the end whether they want to stay or whether they want to go with the client manager and so the only real defense against all this is to make the relationship one part but to have many other important mm. factors in yes. the service correct you know make the service not just about the relationship but have many different parts to that service correct. so it's a holistic approach to the client not just tax and accounting which is this particular person does for you but it's all these other things that we do for you and if you were to leave then you'll miss out on all these other things as well but you know you're right we you, you can't hold a client they, they are their own person and they can go to whoever they want so to safeguard all of this, it starts from the recruitment. So you recruit the right person who's not entrepreneurial but who's more intrapreneurial, who wants to work, wants to have a job and and be part of a team and wants to get a salary, not to be out on their own because that's a different person. That person who's out there on their own, starting their own business where you don't know where your next dollar is coming from, that's a different person to a person who wants a steady wage and consistency so you hire that kind of person and not an entrepreneurial kind of person to begin with so that's the first thing and then you put all the other things in place and that and then there's again after you've done all of that there's no guarantees but however on balance it's much better to have that and run the small risks that you may lose a few clients than to do everything yourself because the the other the flip side to it to that is people get so fearful that they do everything themselves and that's the wrong way to think because you become a prisoner in your business, you can't grow your business, then you have all those things like, I don't want to grow anymore because... So that's the flip side of the opposite to that. Welcome back. So to efficiently structure your team, you need to separate between production and communication traffic and you need to hire different skills for each. In the next episode, episode 200, Edward Chen will talk more about the ideal team structure. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.